With not your truth or kindness, Lord. With not your truth or kindness, Lord. Welcome to The Notice, where together we notice the mercy of God. I'm Susan Hookstra, your host. The Notice podcast explores our need for validation and affirmation through biblical musings and conversations with special guests. Experience relevant topics and encouragement as we take notice of how the God of mercy satisfies. On this episode of The Notice, do you know anyone who seems to take messy too far? Perhaps they even experience distress when trying to let go of their possessions. Tune in as we talk with celebrated author Cynthia Rupti. We discuss her new book, Afraid of the Light, a beautifully written story which focuses on the heartbreaking issues that hoarders face. We learn how God takes notice of us in the mess and how we can live a life hemmed in hope. Well, Cynthia Rupti tells stories hemmed in hope through her novels, nonfiction books, devotionals, and speaking engagements for women's events, drawing from 33 years writing and producing an on-air radio broadcast. Her books have been celebrated and recognized by RT Reviewer's Choice, CELA Awards, CR's Best Awards, Carol Awards Honors, Christie Awards Honors, Family Fiction Reader's Choice Awards, and many more. Cynthia is the professional relations liaison for American Christian fiction writers, and she's been privileged to write and publish more than 30 books. Cynthia and her plot-tweaking husband live in the heart of Wisconsin, not far from their three children and six grandchildren. And since 2017, she's also served as a literary agent with books and such literary management. So Cynthia, welcome to The Notice. Thank you. Thank you, Susan. It's such a privilege to be here. Well, I'm excited you're here. I know we met at a writer's conference a couple years ago in Chicago. And from the first moment I met you, I was like, wow, there's just really, God's really using her. And there's something special about Cynthia. So I am so glad to spend the time with you and talk about this great book that you just wrote. Now, I know you've written a lot of books and some people call your books reality fiction, although you have written nonfiction books as well. Um, and this particular book that you just wrote, you cover a topic that's really interesting. It's called Afraid of the Light, and it talks about the subject of hoarding. So tell our listeners a little bit about how you were compelled to write about this subject. I typically, in my novels, I love to deal, dig into topics that maybe other authors aren't or topics that are of interest, but they're kind of ignored because they're a little messier than we might want to think about. And, and this is one of the topic, topics that if you would want to describe it as messy, it is on all different kinds of mm-hmm. levels. We think naturally about people who have a hoarding disorder and we think just piles and piles of junk all over the house and you can't even walk in there's a small narrow pathway and we may have seen television shows that have kind of aggrandized how awful that can be 
but there was always this niggling at the back of my mind that there has to be more story behind that story. What brings a person to a place where their things or their possessions or their accumulation completely takes over and makes all the decisions for them, where they are subject to or they're almost a slave to what has happened to them. It's not that that's what they chose for their life. It's not that that's what they wanted to be. What's that story behind the story? So I began to investigate then, and what I found was way more and way deeper mm -hmm. than I ever would have imagined initially, but I became fascinated with one of the common bonds with almost every hoarder, almost every person who, not just those who have a tendency to, to collect a lot of things or a scavenger kind of person or, uh, or like my husband who something breaks down, he'll take pieces, parts off of that thing that broke down because he's pretty sure he's going to need that belt or mm -hmm. that gear or something later. Mm -hmm. And he often does need it later. But particularly those who have the, the actual mental health anxiety disease of hoarding. And almost everyone, almost to a person, there is some deep, deep wound or a major trauma in their life that has taken maybe a natural tendency and so exacerbated that, so heightened it, that they fall then into this more like an addiction of hoarding. And uh, that's what I wanted to explore through this novel, partly for my own self, so I would understand better. So my empathy would grow, which it certainly did. And so you did some research, you talked to um, a psychologist, I understand? I did. I talked to uh, more than one clinical psychologist, got some ideas of what a clinical psychologist might be allowed to do and not allowed to do. And we have a disclaimer in the book that talks about the idea that we had to bend some rules a little bit in order for this for the story's sake, which often happens with novelists. But uh, because some of the um, conversations that might be happening between the characters would have ordinarily violated privacy policies, or, or general um, methods that a, a clinical psychologist might use when dealing with one of their clients. But I, I also got some insights behind the scenes and then I did an awful lot of investigating in books and articles written about the subject. I talked to a lot of people who had a, a, a family member or a friend who was deeply ingrained in hoarding and the fallout that there was in the families, then that began to take over as a theme that I was seeing. I had no idea what kind of damage was being done in family relationships mm, mm, in mm. those who have a hoarding disorder. And if there could be, even in story form, even in, even in this novel method of storytelling, to have uh, all of us be able to get a little bit better glimpse at what's happening to those that we would notice the families and what they're going through and then notice not the hoard but the hoarder hmm. when we would walk into a hoarding situation first thing we would see is the piles and the stacks we might notice the smells there's a human being in the middle of that that's right in the middle of all the piles that human being is noticed by god what is in us that's keeping us from noticing the person and instead noticing the problem above all else? That's a tough call. 
because as a family member, you talk about that in the characters in the book on how they struggle with this and how do I respond? What do I do? So tell me a little bit about some of the characters in their book. I know there's Camille. And so tell us, just to give, give us a glimpse of some of the, the characters in the book and, and where, where they're coming from. I love writing characters who feel like they are people you already know. And that means that some of them begin in a way that they're not as grown up as they're going to be by the time we get to the end of the book. That is the hope. Camille is one of those people. She's a bright, sharp clinical psychologist. She has a vested interest in helping other families avoid the kind of pain she knew from her childhood. So she grew up in a hoarder family. Her mother was a severe hoarder. And she knew, related to all of the relationship damage that could be done in that she really felt in, in her core nuclear family, which was her father and her, her father who allowed her mother to succumb, he was helpless. He didn't know what to do or how to help her. So there was that dynamic. And then, it, it, and then the mother with this hoarding disorder that to the daughter, and this is, this is where this enters in really well to the theme even of your podcast, where the daughter grew up feeling that her mother preferred things above her daughter mm. and mm. loved things mm. and clung to things. And then the daughter was... In, in essence, seemed like part of the trash of the household. She was and, there. And of course, she felt unnoticed. And felt completely unnoticed. And then that had repercussions in, in her relationship with friends and family. Now, I'm not telling too much of the story because this is a story that's very common with many hoarder families is that especially with young people growing up with a hoarder for a parent, it is so easy for them to see the junk or see the compulsion toward the junk and feel that same kind of sense that, that how could she choose this above me? They also can't invite their friends over to the house. They, they rarely go out to other, if they go to some other home and it's what, might, what we might call a normal home, all that does is cause them to realize how unnormal their household is. There are parts of that that either carry over in positive ways. This is, I'm going to break the chain. Mm -hmm. I, it's not going to happen in my life. Or it becomes this overwhelming sense of this, this tidal wave of all of this is too much for me. I guess all I can do is just lean back and ride the tidal wave. And then they become hoarders themselves sometimes. That's one character, Camille. Then there's Eli, who is a garbage truck disposal driver. He says he has a fleet of trucks, but mm -hmm. he has two, which he technically calls a fleet. But <laughs> he's got his own life story that I, I can't share all of that without giving away too much of right. the, the point of the novel. But he's one of those people who has just this insatiable appetite for wanting to help others, which is very good and very much in keeping with what God's word teaches us, but sometimes that too can get out of hand. But he has a way with the hoarder clients that is just so charming to watch. And then that's a lesson to this clinical psychologist who's trying to use all her education 
in these relationships with her clients, all her training, all that she knows to be true from the books she read. And then here's a here's one of the disposal people, the garbage guys, who has more insight than she has on her own. Mm-hmm. And as, she, as they watch one another work, they really form a great team. And it kind of spoke to my heart too in the idea that whatever we whenever we come to a particular problem solving topic with two different mindsets, <clears throat> we're probably going to wind up being much more effective than we come with just our own mindset. Absolutely. And then when I got into the mix too, where you've got that overarching insight that is better than my own, better than his own, I, you know, might think of a marriage or you could think of a friendship where you're tackling the same problem, that there is there's something to be gained from everybody in the process. But one of Eli's most important gifts was that he noticed everything. One of the things I loved about this book is how that relationship developed. And one of the things that he did was he really took notice of Camille. And he really like observed her behavior, her thought process, her heart. It wasn't that he just noticed her as a woman. He noticed her, her heart. Mm -hmm. And then the essence of that in this beautiful portrayal of that, I also saw that line up with the fact that that's exactly what hoarders are looking for. To me, I got from it, wow, hoarders are living this silent existence where they don't want to be noticed. (laughs) Typically the piles that they have are an attempt to hide what's really their genuine need. The the piles, they they hide behind the the stacks of things. They hide behind garbage bags full of, of useless things, partly because they feel useless themselves or they feel, they may have a, really strong attraction to items that we would consider not just throwaways, but it's important to throw that away, like an old fast food wrapper or something. Why would a hoarder want to not throw away an empty and worthless plastic bag that they brought home their Walmart groceries in? I mean, you can collect a certain amount of them, but Mm -hmm. then they could override run Mm -hmm. the house too. We all know that. But why would it be impossible for a hoarder to throw that away? And it's because they've made an unnatural connection to what other people would would think of as trash or garbage. And it's because that's how they feel inside. That's one of the dynamics that's at work within them. So when we translate that into our daily lives, when we're walking past people without noticing the, the way their shoulders slump, or if we're if we walk past people in our even in our own households and we're not paying attention to the silent cues they're giving about a an issue or a pain or an agony or a or a wrestling match they're having a mental wrestling match that's the beginning of trouble it's always the beginning mm-hmm. of trouble if we don't notice mm-hmm. when we're talking about a hoarder that gets to that level that's a mental disorder I know there's probably listeners out there that go, well, well, my daughter's house is a mess. You know, is she a hoarder? And we kind of put that label on her. You know, um, CBS News actually did this thing called a hoarder test. 
And I was looking up that and it says from messy to mental health. So listeners out there, if you if you uh, are concerned about yourself or somebody else you know who might be going this direction, take maybe take that test. See if it if it's as as is as bad as you think. Because it could just be disorganizational or somebody has ADD or something, or it could be to this. But what you're talking about and what you cover in this book is that deep, dark, dark place where they hang on to that McDonald's wrappers or whatever it is, where they can't let go of that and their place just accumulates. So what do you think could change in a hoarder's heart if they knew that God noticed them? I think that's really key. And if I could if I could trace back just a little bit, this is going to make a connection for any any of your listeners, I think. If we trace back a little bit to the idea that there is a mental illness kind of hoarder disorder, there are those of us who collect too much stuff. There are those of us who have a, a junk room that we don't open that door for anybody, that which is not the same thing. There are all those different levels, but we're all hoarding something. Sometimes that might be bitterness or it might mm. be a grudge from mm, junior it's good. high. It's good. Or it might be that we're letting some things pile up in our lives and just not facing it and dealing with them. And then all of a sudden, those issues, whether whether it's related to our physical health or a relationship that went awry and we just can't bring ourselves to clean up the garbage that's lying between us and another human being, we're all hoarding something. Mm -hmm. And the answer is the same, whether it's part of a of a mental illness, health issue, or whether we are an average person with an average accumulation of the dust that we collect by walking through life, or the the little burrs that we get on our, our pant legs that we're walking through the woods of life. And that is what you find with a lot of hoarders' homes is that they will intentionally block out the light. The light almost stings. And it's not because, it's because partly they don't want anybody to see in. They don't want to see out where life is going on normally for other people. But they certainly don't want anybody to see in. We often do that ourselves with um, a, with a secret sin or a, a private uh, grudge or, or a private problem that we have with somebody that we're just going to be a martyr about it and not not letting exactly. light into exactly. that, mm -hmm. but it is the light that brings the healing. So symbolically, oftentimes, one major step for someone who is a, is a pathological, one might say, or, or a uh, clinical hoarder is to reach the point where they can pull back the curtain or where they can allow someone in to where their messiness is. And that's the beginning of where the work can happen that will bring about the truth of who they are, what they're dealing with, where where now where we can can we start in bringing about healing. But that the light has to come in. They have to allow someone in, <clears throat> and especially for hoarders or for us, <laughs> the definition of light is the light of the world, and that's Jesus Christ. Of course, he yeah. and and the beauty of his being of light that the Bible tells us in him is no darkness at all. 
I mean, how much more pure could that light be? In him is no darkness at all. We walk through our lives and we're being a flash of light here and a flash of light there and a flash of light there. And then we have our crabby moments or Mm -hmm. we have our, our moments where we're completely selfish. And that's impossible for Jesus and impossible for God. So we know that if we're letting that light in, it's going to always be a healing light. It may be a searing light. It may be like a laser light that really has to get to the heart and the crux Mm -hmm. of the problem, but it will always be healing and it will always be, um, I hate to use the word enlightening because that word has been twisted many times, but bringing light with it that he can't walk into the room. He can't walk into a, a room in our hearts and not illuminate everything about him because he is that light source. And I think the name of the the book, Afraid of the Light, just kind of emphasizes that. What? Why are we afraid of the light? Mm-hmm. Why are we afraid of of that? You know, mm-hmm. I, in the book, it's so beautiful because the characters introduce that life in light in small steps, mm-hmm. and it reminds me of just being compassionate and, and merciful. This is a silent wound and they're suffering themselves, but you know, how do we respond? Let's talk a little bit about the people who are watching the person who's hurting, not just the hurting person. In Luke, in Luke 12, 34, it says, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So, hey, I can just throw scripture at him, right? <laughs> Scripture says that, right? Well, that's not very empathetic. That's not very merciful. And of course, you know, in Romans 12, 15, it says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep those who can weep. So you hem this in in your book about how these characters can show that mercy and find that balance between truth and encouraging to be not afraid of the light. So tell us a little bit about that. I think one important thing that we often forget is that, and, and it's, a, it's a great example of with a novel, if, if there's a person who has never read one of my books, they have to know first that they can trust me before they're going to want to stay with the novel. They, they need to know that I care about them, the reader, not just about the characters. I'm not writing this book just for me, although God often uses that in my sure. own life as well, but it's for them. And it may be a few pages in before they realize, um, I'm going to stick with this story because I sense that there's something in this for me and even beyond entertainment. So oftentimes when we're dealing with people in our everyday lives and we would love to go up to them and just plain old correct them or throw scripture Mm -hmm. at them, we know the truth. But what has to come first is that bridge of love and trust. Then maybe they'll be able to answer. With Camille and her clients, she had to do a lot of loving, appreciating, listening, leaning in, and noticing before any of her clients would begin to take little baby steps toward their healing. She had answers that she could offer from her psychology books and from the behavioral change mechanisms and tools that she could use. But in every situation that we find, I I can't think of a situation where it would not be this way unless God had so prepared the heart that we just came in at the tail end of what God had been doing in that person's life. 
it's going to be the love and the trust factor that paves the way and opens the door. It's going to be our looking them in the eye and recognizing the, the person, seeing the person that will give us the honor and the privilege of saying something. Right. We're such a society of saying Mm. We, we are a spit it out, have to get this off my chest. Every time I see a Facebook post that says, I just have to rant for a minute. I'm thinking, no, you really don't. That's you right. You don't have <laughs> to rant. Mm -hmm. You think you do, but we really, none of us need to speak to any topic unless God calls us to. But we do need to listen. And I, I love that verse too that talks about being slow to speak and slow to anger, quick to listen, and all of those. But the first thing he said was quick to listen, quick to listen. Mm -hmm. And my thinking in that is we skirt over that, that concept so easily. It's so easy for us to say, we yep, do. yep, yep, I get it. I know that. I know that. We do. But there are so many situations in which if we took the time to listen, there's one particular scene that I'll give away a little bit in the in the book, but it, it to me it's just symbolic of what happens in life. Uh, that one of the characters who had a hoarding disorder was hanging onto a chipped and broken coffee carafe. It was a mess. It was there. It was unusable, but he could not throw it away. And Eli, because he was a noticer and a listener, asked him why that was important to him. And he told a story, then the client told a story about his wife making him coffee every morning and it was mm -hmm. the, for however many years that they'd been married and she was gone. And then not only the characters observing that scene, but I, as an author observing that scene, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, oh, I, that makes more sense than it did. It's completely useless. And the character, Eli, had the foresight to do two really interesting things. He nicked himself with that broken glass and blood flowed. And Camille, the psychologist, was watching that happen, happening and saying, who's going to bleed for another person to show how much he's loved? Wow. Well, I know mm -hmm. who does. Yes. <laughs> yes. So it was such a Jesus moment there. But then... Eli's point was, is there a mug that your, your wife's hands touch this carafe every morning? Is there a mug that she drank out of every morning that her lips touched? And, he, and the uh, client then was able to think about that and realize, yes, there is. And he pointed exactly to the one it would be. And Eli was able to convince him to get rid of the broken carafe because the client didn't want somebody to get injured by that. He, right. he didn't care if he got injured, but he didn't want someone else to be injured by the broken carafe. But he was willing to throw that away in order to hang on to the thing that his wife's lips had touched. So it was a lot of pulling back layer after layer after layer, but it was also connecting with the idea that somebody would care about me so much that they would bleed in order to bring me hope. There's no judgment in there. And is without there? judgment. Yes. And that is where we're all living. Somebody bled to give us hope without condemnation. And that's what mercy tells us. 
That's what mercy mercy, is all about. mercy tells us that it doesn't matter where you're at. I'm mm-hmm. going to meet you where you're at. Then I want you to see the light. I don't want you to be afraid of the light. I want you to see the light. And mercy kind of is that gap that gets us there. It's such a beautiful way of explaining the compassion we can have and to approach it in a way that isn't judgmental, that isn't harsh, you know, that it is loving and kind as somebody who is observing somebody who's hoarding. So, because our first inclination is just clean up your mess, right? Right. Um, I'll help you. If you can't do it, just let me in. I'll make your house clean. You'll see how lovely it is. That's where you'll want to live. Right. But when a hoarder has their house cleaned out by somebody else who's coming in with the judgmental attitude or with with the idea that you have to change and I'm going to change you, what they wind up feeling is empty. They don't wind up feeling free. They feel empty. And so that isn't the answer. And then when we trace that to other situations in our life, we think, wow, same thing there too. Somebody's going to come in and tell me, just get over your grief. Here, I'll help you. Mm-hmm. We'll go out for lunch. We're going to have a good time this evening. That'll be fine. Uh, you'll be over your grief. You'll we'll start getting over your grief. Come on, let's go. Let's mm-hmm. go. It's been long enough now that you've been mourning that. But it's the person who will listen and allow the other person to grieve will be beside them while they walk through that until that person can take those steps necessary to feel stronger and healthier about the grief that they are going to have to manage all their lives. And and that takes time and it takes time, but it also takes stepping back and not seeing how the situation affects you, but how it's affecting that other person. I know I'm a, I'm a lay counselor for our church and I um, work with people and God gives me insights into helping them. But the very first thing is you've got to meet them where they're at. They've got to know that somebody sees them, somebody notices them. And so if you're somebody out there who's struggling with this, God sees you. He really sees you. And I want you to realize that there's people out there who can help, who are not only professionals, but even some kind people who love Jesus who just want to love on you. So try not to judge yourself. Try not to condemn yourself and, and get some help that you need. And for those people out there who, who are struggling, do you have anything else you'd like to say to them? One of the things that has, has been built in me through the process of writing this story and getting it launched into the world is you touched on it before, is that idea of compassion. And no matter where we are as listeners, no matter where we are, we all could could gain, gain from developing our empathy and our compassion more. God was such a God of compassion. He calls himself that. He calls himself the God of hope. He calls himself the God of endurance. He calls himself the God of encouragement. He wants us to share the kind of comfort we get from him with other people. So if we begin to walk through life that way, and if we're the person who is in need of that compassion, sometimes we try to find it from places or people who are just as toxic or just as troubled Mm -hmm. as we are. But oftentimes we may miss, unless we're noticing, we may miss the person that crosses our path who may be generations older than we are or generations younger than we are. 
but they're, they are a person that God might use to help bring that listening ear across our path. Or we may cross paths with those who need our listening ear in this. The primary lesson that I gained out of it all was there really is one source of hope. And that is God, Jesus Christ, Absolutely. the Holy Spirit. That's one there's one source of hope. And if we can be carriers of that hope to the people around us, and especially to those who we, once we start to be aware that we see that what's missing in their life is that they don't yet know that God notices, that he cares, that he sees, that he's El Roy, mm-hmm. that he, that he, no matter what we've been through, no matter what our life is, that's no right, matter that's right. That, mistakes or garbage, whatever is around us, whatever we've chosen to bring around us and hold tight to us, he sees and he knows. His love has not been affected by knowing us well. He knows us way down to the core in the places that we don't even know ourselves. And the fact that his love overrides and rules over all of that is such a word of hope for us, no matter what we're going through. If you or someone you know is struggling with hoarding, know that you are only one prayer away from being hemmed in hope. Reach out and receive the healing light from the Lord. For those of you who would love to read or share with others Cynthia's book, you can find Afraid of the Light on any of your traditional book platforms like Amazon, or you can visit Cynthia's website at Cynthia Rukti, that's R-U-C-H-T-I dot com for more information. Next time on The Notice. Did you know a sunflower's main purpose is to have his face point towards the sun? As believers, we are at our healthiest when pointed towards God. However, there are times when we try to get from other sources what should rightfully come from God. So listen in as I welcome Jack Magruder, Executive Pastor of Trinity Church in Lansing, Michigan. We talk about those sunflowers and a little about Gideon, and we talk about idols, both obvious and unobvious, and how they keep us from noticing God. So until next time,
kindness, Lord.